Ward okay. highlighted all of your actualies. What? I know. You know what? It's oh god, it's so fucking annoying. Microsoft Word. Yeah, it also highlighted bourgeois. It also highlighted bourgeoisie in my first paragraph. Oh, that's because you just add an extra i. I, no, I backspaced it. It's bourgeois. No, it's bourgeoisie. Um, there might be two accepted spellings, but I always say it in my head as bourgeois, so I can spell it right. Well, there's bourge- there's bourgeois and there's bourgeoisie. Bourgeois is an adjective, and bourgeoisie is the noun. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah, so the class is the bourgeoisie, but like, oh, you're putting salt on your food? Oh, so bourgeois. Twitter has yet again corrupted my fucking brain. What happened? That's how I always saw it spelled on Twitter. Like, probably, 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 as as much as like the actual spelling. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, who cares? Like, you can say bourgeois, and people will know that you what you're talking about from context clues. I could say bougie or bougie. Bougie, yeah. But bougie doesn't mean bourgeois. They mean different things. Like bougie just means. You know what? I'm not even going to try to define it because every time I try to define slang terms, Ebony like makes fun of me for being uncool. <laughs> That's her job. I, I also, well, I mean, we kind of are uncool. We are uncool. We're very uncool. I take I take a little bit of pride in that. All right, you wanna get into it? I wanna hippity hop into this bitch. Let's go. Hey, yo, welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theories so you don't have to. Hey, yo, hey, I'm reading here. I hate, I hated that so much. So, today, we're covering Jay Sakai's Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat. And barring the Communist Manifesto, this book will probably be one of the most preceded by its own reputation that we've covered so far. Sakai's main thrust throughout Settlers is that white American society, or what he calls settler society, has never really had a proletariat of its own. Now, this claim might sound ridiculous. We know that proletarians are people who don't owe the means of production, and therefore work with the property of the bourgeoisie and receive wages in return. And surely many white Americans throughout history have fit this profile. I want to speak briefly on what I gleaned from reading Settlers about how Jay Sakai views class, though. To Sakai, classes are not conceptual, but material, in that it's not enough that white wage workers just exist in like their role, but the question is, do they actually fill the role of the proletariat? Do they think of themselves as proletarians? Do they act like proletarians? Particularly, where does the loyalty of the white worker lie? According to the historical record set out for us here, the answer to that last question has time and again been the white bourgeoisie rather than black and brown proletarians. And white workers have, time and again, been compensated for this loyalty both materially and psychologically. As a result, the class character of white workers has always been one of the petite bourgeoisie rather than the proletariat. This has major ramifications about how we talk about the efficacy of capitalism and how we think about our political goals, but that'll come later. For now, let's get started with the text. Settlers begins with a short anecdote in which Sakai has a conversation with a new African brother who bemoans that he knows all there is to know about white society, while white society knows nothing about him. And Sakai's response to that is actually no, you don't know about white society. You don't know about white history, at least not everything. And this is because the white history that's taught is not history at all, but is instead a collection of myths that white America tells itself and others to justify its wealth and power. This mythology begins with the very first settlers. American leftists understand that the history surrounding the pilgrims is already heavily mythologized, but let's get into specifics. The mythology states that the pilgrims fled religious persecution in England to the New World, where they would have the freedom to practice their faith as they wished. In reality, the primary impetus for those who shipped out to the New World was the opportunity to own land. English emigration records from 1773 to 1776 cited by Sakai reflect this fact. 
This brings us to our second myth, that the early settlers in the New World tamed a wilderness that was largely uninhabited and built a self-sufficient society by its own labor. The deaths of some nine-tenths of the indigenous population is treated as an accident and incidental to the creation of settler society. In fact, the genocide and enslavement of Native Americans and later Africans was the economic foundation of the settler society. Indeed, the New World enjoyed a general prosperity unseen in Europe for its white population. In 1775, about 80% of the settler population was either artisans or landowning farmers. But this was only possible due to the brutal exploitation of non-white natives and slaves. And here we reach the central theme of Sakai's book, that the defining characteristic of white America, or settler society, is, and has always been, parasitism. It's so funny to me how many adults legitimately believe that the f- story of the first Thanksgiving is uh, Native Americans teaching pilgrims how to grow corn, then everyone having uh, a meal together, then getting along peacefully for the next, uh, I don't know, 400 years. I fucking, I heard the craziest take on Reddit the other day. Someone was like talking about how like the U.S. lost Vietnam and they were like admitting that the U.S. lost Vietnam, but they went, you know, that's just what happens when your enemy is willing to commit genocide and you aren't. And it's like, are you a f- <laughs> fucking idiot? Like, what? what Uh, we killed like half a million people in vietnam i think and 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 the the um what is it what is it uh tactical strategic hamlets or tactical hamlets or something like that were were concentration camps like we we did the genocide and and they they didn't do the genocide that's Uh and we still lost because it's actually really a it's actually really hard to beat down a foreign population that doesn't want you there. That's like a genuinely difficult thing to do. Yeah, really. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to do it. Um, <laughs> much like a lot of the work during COVID, it's a lot easier to do remotely. Shout out, shout out my drone boys. So even though a minority of settlers in total owned slaves themselves, all of settler society rested on slavery. Quoting Sakai, All sections of white settler society, even the artisan, worker, and farmer, were totally dependent upon African slave labor. The fisherman, whose low-grade refuse fish, was dried and sold as slave meal in the Indies. The New York farmer, who found his market for surpluses in the southern plantations. The forester, whose timber was used by shipyard workers rapidly turning out slave ships. The clerk in the New York City export house, checking bales of tobacco, awaiting shipment to London. The master cooper in the Boston rum distillery the young Virginia overseer building up his stake to try and start his own plantation, the immigrant German farmer renting a team of five slaves to get his farm started, and on and on. While the cream of the profits went to the planter and merchant capitalists, the entire settler economy was raised up on a foundation of slave labor, slave products, and the slave trade, Now, 80% is not 100%. There were white wage workers and even plenty of white indentured servants who worked the fields alongside the slaves. However, these workers do not, at this time, qualify as proletarians under Sakai's reasoning for a couple of reasons. The first is that the status of these white workers was transitory. Because the land in the New World had all been stolen, it was dirt cheap in comparison to that in England, so wage work tended to be a temporary situation just until one hadn't earned enough to buy land for himself. The second reason comes down to consciousness. The white workers didn't want to destroy the parasitic settler society. They wanted to take part in it. So when contradictions in settler society caused conflict between these white workers and white bosses, the workers didn't fight for the universal liberation of working people, the end of slavery, or the return of conquered lands. They often fought for the expansion of slavery and further conquests in order to buy their own settler privileges. To illustrate this point, let's examine Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion was an uprising of American settlers against their British ruling class in 1676. It's considered a precursor to the American War of Independence for good reason. The rebellion was incited not over democratic voting rights or the abolition of slavery or anything lofty like that, but over a disagreement between a slave-owning planter named Nathaniel Bacon and the Virginian governor, William Berkeley. The disagreement in question was over policy towards the native population in the surrounding area. The Virginia colony was in something of an economic depression at this time, so conquest and looting of native lands was a popular idea with the Virginian settlers, and Bacon was at the forefront of this effort. Governor Berkeley, representing the English imperial ruling class, cautioned against this, not out of love for the Native Americans, but out of an appeal to British balance of power politics. While the new conquests were in the material interests of the settlers, they were not in the interest of the empire, which wanted to avoid driving the nearby Susquehannock tribe into an alliance with the French or the Spanish. 
It was along these lines that the rebellion broke out, and it's often along these lines that contradictions in settler society are drawn. We see today the charge from Trump's white working class base that the liberal elites are more loyal to immigrants than to real Americans. Bacon was captured by Berkeley in a failed coup attempt, but then pardoned and released. He returned with a new army and quickly took the capital, Jamestown, without serious bloodshed. Only at this point did the white indentured servants come onto the scene. Berkeley recruited them, promising them land in return. He also promised amnesty to Bacon's planter allies. This caused Bacon's army to dissolve immediately. It was only then that Bacon offered freedom in exchange for African slaves who took up his cause. It's important to point this out because Bacon's rebellion is sometimes described as a fight for the abolition of slavery, when the inclusion of slaves in the ranks of his army was wholly opportunistic, and ultimately only served to further the cause of settler society and the genocides it committed. Of course, Bacon died shortly after recruiting his African fighters, and they all ended up dead or back in chains anyway. But hopefully, the shape of white working class movements in America has been made clear. The American Revolution followed almost exactly 100 years later and took a similar form. The British elite, who represented the ruling class of the whole British Empire, wanted to keep their American colony under control and the lucrative trade associated with it humming along. The American elite wanted to expand their borders and the institution of slavery to grow their own independent power and line their own pockets. Like Bacon's Rebellion, this war represented a contradiction in settler society that could be exploited by enslaved Africans, and exploited they did. The British offered freedom to any slave who fought for their cause. According to Sakai, it's estimated that some 100,000 slaves freed themselves in this fashion. At the end of the war, many Africans who'd fought for the British escaped with them, while those who'd fought for the victorious colonists ended up largely back in chains. The events of the revolution served as a constant reminder that the import of more and more slaves represented an existential threat to settler society. The profits from the slave trade and the use of slave labor were massive, obviously. But it was becoming increasingly clear that the African population would resist colonial rule whenever given the chance. The Haitian Revolution of the 1790s stoked the fear of slave insurrection to the point that there were calls even in the heart of the southern plantation territory to end slavery. These were not calls for equality, but for genocide. Thomas Jefferson, having witnessed the Haitian Revolution, suggested as president that the settlers could send off the children of slaves to the West Indies and let the adults die out back in the States. And, you know, with the, with the understanding that a lot of these children wouldn't even make it to the Indies and would, of course, die uh, there. The life expectancy for someone working on a sugar plantation, for example, was really, really, really short. Yeah, that's not, like, necessarily even as, as a result of, like, um, like, like, like passive death. It was, like, actively just being killed or yeah, it's, maimed by... It's kind, of like, uh, it's kind of like the Armenian genocide where it's, like... If you put someone in a really bad situation and don't care whether they live or die, is that really any different from killing them? No, it's yeah. not. It's not, is the answer. Wasn't, like, when slave ships would come over um, from African colonies bringing slaves, what, the, the thing that was, that was most, like, mind-boggling to me, like, forget... If, if you can forget morality and literally just... If they were looking to be, like, efficient, so many would die... Just come just just in the journey over to America. I'm sure well, they made make... I'm sure they made shrewd businesses. I'm sure whatever they did was the most profitable thing to do because that's the one thing that you can you can always trust uh, capitalist structures to do. That's it's it's that's nuts to me. That's incredible. So uh, Sakai calls this a Hitlerian fantasy, which I think is pretty apt. Uh, and this, of course, didn't happen because the ruling class wouldn't let go of a cash cow as big as slavery while there was still cash to be wrung from it. The tendency of slavery to cause contradictions in settler society also hadn't gone away. As the U.S. urbanized, it needed more and more laborers. While the southern slave-owning bourgeoisie wanted to import more and more slaves, it was clear that increasing the black population, especially in cities, would only lead to more insurrection. In 1820, the population of some large cities in the south, like New Orleans, was over 50% black. In Charleston and Richmond, the early 19th century saw some of the largest slave revolts in U.S. history, and these were urban proletarian uprisings. It was clear that too high of an urbanized slave population made a successful insurrection inevitable. And from the 1820s to the Civil War, the black urban population in the South was intentionally and significantly reduced. In New Orleans, it was reduced from 50% to 15 for example. This meant that the South could not really industrialize, but it was worth it to the planter class to keep control of their colonial holdings. The northern solution was to import a large number of European workers, but this came with its own set of problems. The petite bourgeois character of white workers was easy to maintain where there were relatively few of them, 
But enough to colonize and hold the West and fuel an industrial economy meant the creation of a white urban proletariat. These white workers would need to be granted the privilege of settler society, which the bourgeoisie did not want to do, or else they would be just as much of an insurrectionary threat as the slaves. Between 1830 and 1860, some 4.5 million workers immigrated to the United States, predominantly from Ireland and Germany, among some other places. They made up the vanguard of westward expansion and urban industrialization, particularly in the north. Many aspects of these new immigrant workers suggest a proletarian sensibility. They were wage workers, with little reason to expect that they could join the land-owning or business-owning class. They organized into labor unions and demanded better treatment. But for all this outward veneer of proletarianism, the fact of the matter is that they were a privileged section of the working class, a labor aristocracy. Their movements were not ones of solidarity with the enslaved Africans in the South, or even free blacks in the North. In fact, the winning of rights for the white masses was nearly always accompanied by a rolling back of what little rights African Americans had. The Reform Convention under Martin Van Buren extended voting rights to non-property-owning white men, making Van Buren a white working-class hero, but at the same time, this convention raised those same property requirements for free blacks, effectively stripping voting rights from nearly all blacks who previously had them. The goal was not to end the oppressive regime of the American elite. These white workers simply wanted to enjoy their own share of the loot of the empire. Quote, At a time when the brute labor of the empire primarily rested on the backs of the unpaid, captured African proletariat, the white workers of the 1830s were only concerned with winning the 10-hour day for themselves. In the 1840s, as the empire annexed the northern 40% of Mexico, and by savage invasion reduced truncated Mexico to a semi-colony, the only issue to the white workingmen's movement was how large would their share of the looting be. It is one thing to be bribed by the bourgeoisie, and still another to demand, organize, argue, and beg to be bribed. Unquote. That's the funniest part, is that when people call any popular left-wing movement, um, the people who participate in any popular left-wing movement as uh, temporarily, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. When shit like this happens uh, in capitalist um, labor uprisings anyway like yeah this, one is, this of the, is their consolation that they're happy and begging to take i've seen i'll tell you what we'll, we'll, we'll we're gonna end up we're gonna end uh the episode on um like what i learned about organizing and about theory from reading this but one of the big lessons that i learned is that is that the idea that we should let discussions of race go by the wayside and talk only about class to appeal to that to that Trump voting white working class base um, is is a scam, in my opinion. It's a complete scam. And the reason why I think that is because this is what you see, because because you 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 talk to like like a white, a unionized white working class Trump voter and you talk about, oh, yeah, like the working class people of America are getting a raw deal. Your your wages are too low. And then when you get around, and, and it like sounds like you guys agree, but when you get around to the solutions, they just want to stop immigration because they think it's the Mexicans who are causing the problems for them. And it's it's just, a, it's an exact parallel of, of what Sakai is talking about uh, with this with this farther back history. Yeah, no, I totally see why someone would do that, but I'm, I'm honestly like sick of people trying to placate the white moderates, like who, who would get uncomfortable when people aren't talking about them. I completely agree. I... I couldn't possibly wow. agree more. Wow, isn't that nice? Wow, we have so much in common. Oh, we should start a start a really, really low budget podcast. Re read more theory, oh, okay? No, no, no. This isn't theory. This is mostly history, actually. Read so. Read read more words for me. With the presidency of Andrew Jackson, we see the petite bourgeois and imperialist tendencies of the white masses in their most concentrated form. Under Jackson, the U.S. undertook probably the most horrific campaign of genocide in its national history. The pillage from the conquest of the lands of tribes such as the Creeks, Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Seminoles was used to enrich the white masses at the expense of the true oppressed people of the United States. The Homestead Act of 1851, for example, took advantage of all the newly conquered land to do just that. It's not a lie that for European immigrants, the United States was a land of opportunity. White workers enjoyed higher wages and a significantly better likelihood of owning land someday than they would have in Europe. But this prosperity was not gained through the hard work of the white workers themselves, but through the colonization of the land and labor of the African and indigenous peoples of the continent. As the West opened up to settler expansion, the contradictions that we've been discussing so far became more pronounced. 
Our American listeners may remember from their history classes that the preliminary conflicts leading up to the Civil War were generally fought over whether to extend slavery to the new territories. It's often implied that those who opposed the expansions of slavery did so, at least in part, out of some moral opposition to the practice. In reality, the abolitionists simply understood that anywhere slavery expanded would be somewhere the settler masses couldn't, where the planter bourgeoisie would rake in all the profits of empire for themselves rather than share it with the whole of settler society. The abolitionists didn't desire equality with the African slaves. You know, at least not most of them. You know, there were there were good people out there. Some, I assume, are good people. But I don't want to, I don't, I'm going to say right now, I don't want to give white people who are who are listening to this uh, episode the I, the impression that they can't be good leftists if they're Americans. You can. Just be careful. Right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, this this is a very anti-white episode just because like this is like it's 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 just it's just more and more of white people being really fucking evil throughout American history. I I don't want to give people the impression that Sakai is under the impression that white people can't do good organizing or good leftist work. That is not the case. But the the history kind of speaks for itself, and it's just that we we because we're we're white people too. We just have to be careful that we're not that we continue to listen to and elevate the voices of racial minorities in the United States and abroad, in order to understand the real work that needs to be done and the real uh, people who are who are doing the lion's share of the suffering in order to win the prosperity of the United States. Of course. I feel like the general rule I try to follow is like I can do I can do as much, you know, soapbox standing as I want, but there comes a time a solid amount of the time where I just have to shut the fuck up and let uh someone who is not of me experience talk for a little bit. Yeah, and I think that that's something that actually is god. I I hate to sound too optimistic because that's that's the pathway to looking like an idiot short while later. <laughs> But I do feel on some level that that's something that is actually beginning to be understood by large portions of the American left, of white American leftists, is that like this like that like leftism is about in America, at least is about like racial, racially defined liberty in a lot of ways, because the class because class and race are so specifically intertwined, especially in the United States. Um, At least that's the point of the book the abolitionists didn't desire equality with the african slaves many of them assumed that the institution of slavery was the only thing keeping them alive and that their inherent inferiority would lead to their extinction if left to their own devices the northern bourgeoisie represented by the republican party at the time likewise supported the abolition or containment of slavery because they understood that a vast slave empire maintained only by a thin white line of planters and police was untenable in the long term Thus began the extended process of replacing the various racial minorities around the U.S. with new white immigrant labor. In the South, what industrial urban economies existed were built on the backs of skilled black laborers, who were now pushed out of their workspaces. The economies of the West Coast were built predominantly by Chinese labor, as China was, for practical purposes, significantly closer by water than the East Coast was by land, and the Mexicano population that originally lived there was busy being colonized and ethnically cleansed. Chinese workers made up the vast majority of textile mill workers, fish canners, and farm laborers in California. Depending on the state, they were either a significant portion or an outright majority of miners out west. Between 1851 and 1870, the special tax paid by Chinese miners provided some 25-50% to of government revenues in California. With the finishing of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, which was predominantly built by Chinese laborers, White immigrants flooded the West and very quickly began to seize by force the economic opportunities that Chinese laborers had created. Not only was violence committed against Chinese workers on a massive scale, trade unions were also weaponized to facilitate what Sakai calls an act of colonial annexation. In the case of San Francisco cigar manufacturers, Chinese workers, who made up 80-85% to of the cigar manufacturer workers in the city, went on strike in response to their replacement by white laborers. The white unions actually worked with the manufacturer to break the strike and encouraged white workers to act as scabs. What we see is that the primary function of white unions is not to fight for workers' rights, but to preserve and strengthen settler society and white supremacy. What additional rights these unions win for their workers are largely at the expense of those below them, rather than above. 
The beginning of the end for the Chinese populations of the West Coast was the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which barred Chinese immigration to the United States. We actually discussed the Chinese Exclusion Act in our last episode about um, policing and in particular border policing. It was the earliest specific act meant to regulate immigration to the United States, and it was express, e- expressly racist, as you can tell by the fact that it was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. God, they used to name they used to name things so much more honestly back then. Yeah, I wait. So the railroad finished in 1869, and by 1882, they were like, "Okay, that's enough. That's Railroad's enough, yeah. done. We don't need any more." We don't need you for this, I don't know, menial labor anymore. Please stop coming. Yeah, and the workspaces, the 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 economies that had been built up on with Chinese labor were then taken over by white laborers who pushed them out. And this is, you know, it's it's call it what it is. It's an, it's an act of colonialism. It's an act of annexation. It sounds like there were competing unions for the same uh, sort of work in the same place. We did did the. Um, I guess the Chinese cigar manufacturer workers have a union as well, and they were like competing unions. I'm not sure that the Chinese workers had their own union, but regardless, whether they did or they didn't, uh, they certainly had less power. And the the state was very much on the side of these new, you know, calling them white workers is maybe a little bit um, anachronistic because they wouldn't have been considered fully white in the same way that like an Anglo-Saxon would have at the time. But um, sure. But European workers, Euro-American workers, as uh, Sakai calls them. Hmm. And this, this, it, it, it seems like even though they were, um, they, it may not have been a formal union, Chinese workers were organized enough to all go on strike together. And then it was broken up by, um, I guess, what you could call a competing white union. Are there sure. still competing unions in the same places for the same type of work? Because I guess the function of the union is to advocate for the workers in that union. But does that extend to um, advocating against other unions for your own? Well, um, in theory, that's not supposed to happen because the point of a union is to unite the workers as like a single fist that can be used against the power of the capital owner. But uh, in practice, I mean, yeah, that does happen. And it it often happens along racial lines. Which is important to understand. That's a big. That's a big. It, it often happens along racial lines. So Chinese Exclusion Act, and then the decades that followed saw the whole of white American labor, even self-described Marxists and socialists, engage in campaigns of terror and violence. Chinese fishing villages were burned so that white workers could take over the industry, and many towns reported that they had eliminated their Chinese population entirely. The means by which the economies built by Chinese laborers were annexed by white Americans was, as Sakai puts it, straightforward and brutal. The black population of the South was not as simple a matter. Black people in America were not just a national minority. In an area of land stretching from Virginia to Texas, blacks actually made up the majority of the population. They did the vast majority of the labor, too. In all but name, the Black Belt, referred to by Sakai as the African National Territory, was a separate nation from the United States, just under American colonial control. It was functionally no different from Haiti in relation to France, at least prior to its revolution. And there were some 4 million Africans living there who were now free from slavery. The Civil War had ended in 1865, officially, but that didn't mean hostilities were over. First of all, we need to consider that the Civil War really consisted of two distinct conflicts— one between the North and South over control of the American empire and its colonial holdings, chief among which being the Black Belt itself, and another between the Black population and the empire as a whole over whether they should be colonized at all. While the war between the North and South was over, at least in a military sense, the war between colony and empire was ongoing. The economy was no less dependent on cheap African labor than it had been a few years prior, and the Southern planter economy was now under the largest strike effort in American history one that the white unions who'd been annexing desirable jobs from non-white workers for decades had no part in. These strikes were armed and militant, and their stance was not one of workers' protections, but of national liberation. In places all over the Black Belt, land was being seized by those who had worked on it as slaves. So it goes that the war to pacify the southern planters was followed by a war to pacify the African colony. In many cases, this took the form of a literal war, the Union Army conducted military operations to take back the land that had been seized by groups of former slaves. 
the Union also took what steps it could to remove the black troops it had enlisted and trained, either discharging them and sending them back down south, where they invariably suffered at the hands of white terrorist organizations like the Klan, or sending them out west to serve as colonial troops for the colonization efforts against the indigenous peoples of the continent. This accomplished the goal of putting down the most militant forms of rebellion across the African national territory, but the writing on the wall was clear. If the southern planters could no longer be trusted to rule themselves, and they couldn't, then there would have to be another way. I think this would be a good opportunity to go over the distinctions between colonialism and neocolonialism. Colonialism is a system in which an imperial oppressor nation uses military force to occupy and control an oppressed nation in order to extract value from its labor and resources. Neocolonialism shares this end, but the means are different. Neocolonial nations are either made equal citizens of the empire, on paper, or granted their own sovereignty, on paper. Don't get me wrong, violence still plays a major role in this control, but it's done more in the context of maintaining rule of law rather than honest military repression. Black Reconstruction was a process that followed the Civil War which had attempted to establish a neo-colony in the African National Territory where a traditional colony had previously existed. The first step in this process was the unilateral granting of citizenship to the members of the African colonial nation through the ratification of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is generally celebrated in American education. It certainly was when I was taught about it in school, and it seems like an obvious thing to do. Citizenship is associated with a bunch of rights and privileges, but it also obfuscates the national character of the Black Belt and its residents. We must remember that this amendment was ratified at the same time that the Union Army was putting down movements that threatened to expel the American Empire from the national territory entirely. With that being said, Black Reconstruction produced some interesting results while it lasted. Black representation in state governments would have been impressively high by today's standards, and according to Sakai, the legislations presided over by Black Reconstruction passed labor protections, legalized divorce, and opened public schools, among other things. Reconstruction was very much an effort to assimilate a rebellious colony back into the empire that oppressed them so that their labor could continue to support the economy, but it was certainly preferable to what ultimately replaced it. There was a fundamental contradiction in Black Reconstruction that made it untenable for the long term, though, that the role of Reconstruction was to use the African neo-colony to keep down the old southern planters, even though granting them the necessary power to do so would have undermined the North's ability to maintain neo-colonial control over the national territory. Because of this, there could be no meaningful resistance to the guerrilla war waged against the governments of black reconstruction by white supremacist groups. The war was waged through mass killings of black people in the street, particularly in the lead up to elections. State by state, reconstruction was defeated, and Africans were forced out of the positions of power they had only just gained a few years prior. Even though the black reconstruction leaders had made a point to be conciliatory, to work in harmony and even subserviently to white southerners, even though many of the reforms passed under Black Reconstruction were materially beneficial to white working families, white labor sided overwhelmingly with the Klan. As we discussed before, the primary goal of white labor is the advancement of settler imperialism, not the protection of workers. And that's just not white people who are laborers. That's, that's not an over-encompassing term. It's specifically all all white unions. Correct? Yeah, this is this is the this is this is white laborers to the degree that they work as a unified class towards political goals. This is not all white people. Okay. But it's most of them. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> At the time I mean, I mean 1860s people were racist. What do you want from me? They were racist. I, I don't okay. know what to tell you. <laughs> I got, I got nothing. <laughs> people are still racist. I, I can't help you with that. I can't I can't can't do uh, Mark, Mark, we have to end the podcast. We're not ending racism. Then what are we doing? <laughs> Reconstruction officially ended when the last federal troops were removed from the South. This was the result of the Hayes-Tilden Agreement, which occurred after the contested 1876 election. In exchange for removing the last troops, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes became the president, but the South once again belonged to the Southern planters. According to Sakai, and I couldn't find an independent citation for this, I looked... Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were of the opinion that the Southern whites needed to be politically disenfranchised en masse in order to preserve whatever good had come from the Civil War in Reconstruction. And, I mean... That's a fancy and aggressive way of saying reparations now. Reparations? I mean, it's a fancy and aggressive way, way of saying if you fought for the Confederacy, you don't get to vote for the rest of your life, which, honestly, like, fuck them. Yeah, 
Yeah, that, that I feel like that was the that was the offer initially, and then it was military action. So they kind of don't get the the um, uh, what is it? The the initial prize. They 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 pass that up. You're done. But wasn't our economy mostly reliant on those southern colonies, though? So we kind of had to give them that sort of thing. Well, that's the that's the trouble, right? Is that is that in the north you don't the the southern whites and the leaders of Black Reconstruction, Black leaders of Black Reconstruction, and and the African National Territory are in direct conflict with each other. And you don't want to give the Southern whites any power because you literally just fought a war against them so that you could run the empire the way you wanted to. But you even more than that really don't want to give any kind of military power. You want to keep the black population disarmed. And so the end result is inevitable that the Southern whites are just going to take control back. There's nothing you can do unless you're willing to militarily and politically enfranchise Southern Southern blacks to the degree that they are able to fight off the Southern planter class. But at that point, they're also able to demand more political rights than you are personally willing to grant for them. And so that's just what, that's how it goes. That's the decision that they made. So they're stuck between a rock and a racist place. (laughs) It's racist. It's all racism always has been. (laughs) I thought, I thought we were doing verbal memes on this, on this podcast. Yeah. That ended like, seven episodes ago oh fuck you know what's funny is that is that throughout all the iterations of that meme you can always you you always remember what the original was because the ohio state flag is still on the astronaut with a gun's (laughs) arm (laughs) wait it's all ohio always has been oh i thought the wait i thought the original one was uh was jeb where the the whole United States just has the whole electoral college voting for Jeb, and he's like, "It's all Jeb, always has been." No, no, it's Ohio. You you can tell the original was Ohio because he has the Ohio state flag. I'm of the opinion that Ohio has a trash state flag. I don't know if that's popular or not. I don't know. I feel like most state flags are awful, except oh. for except for obviously California, um, Maryland. Maryland is okay. Maryland is a Maryland is awesome. Uh, Colorado flag, I think, is fantastic. Yes, uh, I like and the Arizona flag. The um, Alaska, the Chicago, the Chicago, uh, the Chicago city, city flag. flag. Great. Yeah, I like really it. cool. The DC flag is good too. I uh, but we'll, it looks we'll, very similar. We'll do. We'll, may, maybe we'll have to do like a, a vexillology offshoot, like a little bonus episode, just Yo, ranking state. I'll be flags. straight up. This is my hot. This is my hot take of the episode leftist flags are on the whole bad oh what like for political ideologies the, like the, um the hammer and sickle like it, the hammer and sickle is fine but like the the wreaths and all the seals and, and 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 it's just it's too much it's too much simpler flags we need simpler flags honestly to this day the best leftist flag red just red i love it i love it it's great it's perfect don't just use I, I I like I just like a good red flag. The IWW logo, like uh, in, in in like in red on a black flag, is pretty cool though. I do like how that looks. And Sabacat flags look pretty cool too. Sabacat is, is that is are those the ones with like the black cats going like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's actually. Oh my god. Okay. 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 This is my this is my decom class analysis of the episode as well. We did Cadet Kelly last time. This time we're gonna do High School Musical too. So okay, the no. the 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 school mascot of of the high school and High School Musical is is the Wildcats, as we all know. Correct. The Wildcats. Okay. The, the 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 group of high schoolers who are working at the country club in High School Musical 2 are commonly referred to collectively as the Wildcats. A Wildcat strike is a it's a strike that happens very suddenly and without the um the endorsement or organization of like union leaders. It's just the workers all doing it together. That is actually what happens in the plot of High School Musical 2 because they're barred from the talent show, but then they all to agree to walk off their jobs at the same time and then they all sing you are the music and me together in the third act it's a wildcat strike it's a wildcat strike 
And then it's Bella Chow reprised. And then they say, everybody all for one, which is socialism. Holy fuck. I don't even remember them striking. They strike. There's a strike. There's a wildcat strike. Oh my God. The whole movie is labor analysis. Um, um, Zac Efron is a class trader, but then he decides that that's bad. And so he 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 goes back. He asks for his old uh, kitchen job back instead of uh, his like position in the labor aristocracy. There's a lot of rich Marxism in High School Musical too. Incredible. At the same time, white workers in the North were fighting for the eight-hour workday. Sakai finds this prospect pretty offensive, since at the same time, the African workers down south were fighting for more basic political rights and freedoms. Nevertheless, a wave of strikes that swept the country in the 1870s was a major tactical victory for white labor. They didn't win their eight-hour day, at least not nationally, but they achieved a level of unity and solidarity amongst themselves that was previously unseen. There were still massive contradictions within Euro-American labor, though. There was the unambiguous labor aristocracy of the Anglo-American skilled craftsmen, and there was the mass of European immigrants from Ireland, Germany, Poland, Italy, Scandinavia. These workers were not as cut-and-dry petite bourgeois as their Anglo neighbors, and much of the exploitation they experienced was due to them not really being considered white at the time. Don't get me wrong, their wages and living standards were much better than those of their counterparts back in Europe, and this was made possible only by the super-profits of colonial labor in the Black Belt. But their situation still sucked pretty hard, especially in relation to that of the Anglo-Americans who worked as skilled craftsmen and occupied leadership roles in the unions. This class of immigrant labor had already grown substantially leading up to the Civil War, and would continue after it. By the turn of the century, most people living in American slums were actually foreign-born Europeans. Now, I don't really want to go over the next few decades of labor organizing in close detail, even though it is interesting, because it's just not what we're here to talk about. For our purposes, there are a few things about this new industrial semi-proletariat that we need to know. First, that settler society still rested on the profits made through their exploitation, so they couldn't be fully folded into settler society themselves yet. Second, that the decades between the Civil War and the New Deal were defined by tension between the IWW, a syndicalist union and genuinely socialist organization that sought to unite all workers and opposed imperialism, and the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, which was only interested in recruiting and fighting for Euro-American labor and did not oppose imperialism. The IWW was able to organize and win the largest number of strikes in this time. Third, that the failures of the IWW can be attributed not to direct bourgeois resistance from above, but to reaction in white workers from below. The refusal of the industrial unions to allow non-white laborers into their ranks meant that non-white labor often did not participate in strikes, and thus were often blamed when strikes failed, even though these workers were more exploited even than their Euro-American counterparts. This mirrors the they're-taking-our-jobs rhetoric we see today applied to undocumented immigrants from Mexico and Central America. In the early 20s... Why could they possibly be mad at that? Am I am I just like giving them way too much credit not to think logically about this? Like, hey, you can't be friends with us, but if then you talk shit about us behind our back, then we're gonna hate you. So what's what, well, it's, what? well, they were well. The simple answer is that they were racist, but there's also a uh, there's also a bigger class um there's also a bigger class situation whatever going on here where the empire is reliant on super profits from exploited colonial labor and in the, at this time sakai is referring to black people living within the defined continental united states but in real what is effectively a colonial nation um and so if you accept if you if you make black workers equal to yourself then you are no longer able to reap privileges from their exploitation because you would basically be exploited the same amount as them and um, W.E.B. Du Bois has this idea of the psychological wage, which is basically the way that white workers were treated better than black workers, and how even if you don't pay them more materially, which they did, um, that would often be enough. That would often be enough of a increased uh, standard of living that white workers would be willing to um, put down black workers um, to keep that. In the early 20th century, skilled labor's power over their workspaces was being usurped by direct bourgeois control. 
Then, of course, we had the Great Depression, which saw unemployment skyrocket and corporate power along with it while wages fell. The result of this was that the contradictions within white labor flattened, while the contradictions between white labor and the bourgeoisie were exacerbated. Radicalism and militancy spread to unprecedented levels, and the notion that free market capitalism needed to be replaced was gaining traction. The response to this by the Roosevelt administration was the New Deal. Now, the New Deal did a lot of things, but from a class perspective, the purpose of the New Deal was to totally accept the white industrial proletariat into settler society. Roosevelt granted the eight-hour workday, for example, among workers' protections, among other workers' protections, and also supported the actions of the CIO, or Congress of Industrial Organizations, which organized labor strikes at the time. Roosevelt did not crack down on striking white workers for the most part because they were ultimately loyal subjects of the American empire and loyal democratic voters. This contrasts nicely with how Roosevelt readily crushed anti-imperialist labor movements such as the Puerto Rican nationalists, who were put down quite violently. And uh, Google the Ponce Massacre if uh, you'd like to know more. How do you spell that? P-O-N-C-E. Massacre. Perfect. Yeah, I see leftists standing FDR, but um, this is a fact that's oft omitted from analysis of his presidency. I mean, the reality is that is that even even still, he was probably still the best president from a leftist perspective because at least he did that, which is more than you can say for most other presidents. I feel like 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 the being a leftist can be summed up in rejecting the idea of at least he did that. Well, sure, but the question is not good, but best. In comparison, okay. that I, I take it back then. The full acceptance of the white minorities into settler society is represented in the integration of black laborers into northern industry. More than a million Africans had fled the south for the north in the early 20th century. They were paid lower wages and worked only where employers made a conscious decision that a workplace needed to use African labor. The jobs given to black workers tended to be the most dangerous and exploitative, and the use of their labor created opportunities for newly anointed settlers to move up into better jobs. The ambiguity surrounding the class status of the European immigrants was now gone. They were firmly in the court of the labor aristocracy and totally loyal to the empire. The industrial proletariat was once again made up of colonial labor. During World War II, manufacturers largely hoped to keep their more desirable jobs for white laborers, but by 1942, this was becoming less and less possible. However, the war presented an opportunity for American imperialism that made accepting more and more black workers into the factories and even throwing them a few bones a worthwhile endeavor. Quite simply, the opportunity was to expand the power of the American empire to more and more of the globe. Sakai argues that the United States did not join the war to combat fascism. In fact, this couldn't have been the case, since the United States was not an anti-fascist country. Much of the white American population was perfectly in favor of the fascist regimes of Italy and Germany before they posed a threat to the empire. Even during the war, the United States was happy to indulge in a bit of fascism itself, such as in the case of the internment of some 110,000 Japanese Americans and the confiscation of $6 billion worth of their property in 2020 dollars. Instead, the purpose of the war was to expand American hegemony at the expense of the ailing empires of old Europe and Japan. Regardless of the actual motivation, this is roughly what occurred. The United States, for example, did not wage war on European soil until 1944, at which time the war was already unwinnable for the Germans. Although, you know, there was Lend-Lease, but let's be real here. The Soviet Union won World War II for the most part. They killed seven out of eight German soldiers on, you know, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> The upshot of D-Day and the invasion of France was that by the end of the war, half of Europe was effectively under American control. This was true of the whole of Japan as well, and likely would have been true for China had the nationalists, who were loyal to American power, won the Civil War. And there's quite a bit of book left from here. There's quite a bit of history left. It's very enlightening and horrifying. However, I think you all get the idea. The point is that the economic foundations of settler society, white American society, have always been parasitism off the backs of colonial labor. Suffice to say that if you only listen to this podcast episode, you missed a lot of history, like Sakai's coverage of the American conquest of the Philippines, or the myriad black leaders who served the empire by suppressing the more radical aspects of the fight for black liberation, principally those with a national character. But the purpose of this show is not primarily to teach people history, but to teach people theory. At the end of the Second Civil War, 
the United States entered the economic order that we essentially live in today. And I want to dwell on that before we finish. In 1945, the United States was the only economic powerhouse in the world that hadn't been totally destroyed by war. This afforded the U.S. incredible economic power abroad, which it used to great benefit. In short, the productivity that was once performed by slaves or sharecroppers, or even briefly by European semi-proletarians, had largely disappeared from the continental United States entirely. We extract raw material from the African continent at rates so low that they're basically free. We have them assembled into goods in Mexico or in Asia for below subsistence wages, in sweatshop conditions. The liberal mindset often places the cheap manufacturing labor of the third world in opposition to the high-paying service wages of American workers, but the reality is that the latter necessarily rests on the former. The items we use to define American prosperity are cars, our smartphones, our flat-screen TVs, are dirt cheap, relatively speaking, because of a world economic order that we have imposed that has turned much of the third world into a massive plantation. If there's one piece of wisdom I picked up from reading Settlers, it's this. That there is no U.S. economy. There is no Mexican or Congolese economy. There is only one economy, and we all take part in it. These nations are not closed systems. They interact and occupy different roles in the world economy in the same way that the worker and boss do in a factory. To say that the U.S. economy is doing well and that another foreign economy is not is like saying that the boss's economy is doing well while the worker's economy is doing poorly. And just as in a factory, these roles and the inequality they produce is maintained violently. When the workers strike, they're put down violently by police. When a foreign nation decides that its days of exploitation are over, when it decides to nationalize its oil in the case of Iran, or its lithium in the case of Bolivia, this action is opposed and the leaders deposed by the violent force of the United States. Remember this the next time someone tells you that socialism doesn't work, or that a rising tide lifts all ships. They are not being honest. To analyze capitalism by looking only at the United States is no different than to analyze the United States by looking only at the 1%. People will tell you to look at Cuba or Vietnam and see that their socialism could never produce the wealth and prosperity seen in the United States. And they're right. The problem is that free enterprise, innovation, and a strong work ethic, what they think capitalism is, doesn't either. And I want to leave, I'm going to finish this with a quote from Sakai, my personal favorite from the whole book. It must be emphasized that Euro-American society is not self-supporting. The imperialist mythology is that factories simply multiply themselves, that trains beget airlines and mines beget computers. In other words, that the enormous material wealth of the imperialist metropolis is supposedly self-generated and supposedly comes to birth clean of blood. End quote. I almost don't want to plug our Twitter right now i just want to cut it off there because that was my favorite piece of writing that you've ever done every uh, yeah yeah seriously I'm, I'm not being facetious or trying to inflate your ego but everything after turned much of the third world into a massive plantation there on i was like whoa anyway follow us on twitter at we read theory pod dm me because i'm lonely in quarantine talk to me about what you liked about this episode and just congratulate Mark on a really well-written script in general and also last paragraph. Thank you. Hey, yeah. All right, and that's about it. Thank, love you guys. <laughs>